Now, tonight, we are going to be in 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7. And as we come to chapter 6, we left off last week where Solomon is established as the king of Israel. He's going to build the temple. The temple his father, David, dreamed of building, but God said to David, it's a good thing you want to do it, but it's not for you. You're a man of blood, and we can't have a man of blood building my house of worship. So Solomon, your son, will build it. If you recall, before David stepped into eternity, he saved up wealth to go toward it and that sort of thing. And now Solomon is firmly established. He's in allegiance with the king uh, Hiram from the north in Lebanon. He's got the wood coming down, down the Mediterranean River, or excuse me, the Mediterranean Sea. They haul that wood 60 miles to elevation of 3,500 feet in Jerusalem, and they're going for it. They're going to build the temple of God. From the dawn of creation, since God made the universe, just man, Adam, Eve, the, the fall, and then the calling of Israel and the tabernacle, and now we're moving toward the temple. Next week is when they actually dedicate it. It's going to be amazing to study that. But this week, we're looking at the building of the temple and what a project it was. So that's where we're at tonight. Solomon's going for it. He's, 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 he's an action guy. He gets things done. So we pick it up in chapter 6, verse 1. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the, 40, the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he, Solomon, began to build the house of the Lord. Now, the house which Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits. Now, just remember as we go through this chapter and we deal with cubits, a cubit is generally considered to be a foot and a half. So you just take the number and add 50%, and that's what you get in feet. So the length was 60 cubits. Its width, 20. Its height, 30 cubits. The vestibule in front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, and the width of the vestibule extended 10 cubits from the front of the house. And he made for the house windows with beveled frames. Against the wall of the temple, he built chambers all around. Against the walls of the temple, all around the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. Thus he made side chambers all around it. The lowest chamber was five cubits wide, and the middle was six cubits wide. And the third was seven cubits wide. For he made narrow ledges around the outside of the temple, so that the support beams would not be fastened into the walls of the temple. And the temple... When it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry so, there, so that no hammer or chisel or iron tool was hurt in the temple while it was being built. The doorway for the middle story was on the right side of the temple that went up the stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third. So he built the temple and finished it. He paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar and he built side chambers against the entire temple, each five cubits high, and they were attached to the temple with cedar beams. Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments, and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and will not forsake my people Israel. So in these first part of this chapter, we begin the construction of the temple. And again, in prepping the text tonight, you see in the preview tonight, just sharing with you, they brought this wood down from Lebanon. Like what a massive undertaking that was for the supply chain to get the stuff. But Solomon had a very deliberate and clear idea what kind of wood he wanted to use, how he wanted to do it. And we're going to see that 
we saw last week that he was a botanist, a zoologist. He was into insects and all this kind of stuff. Solomon, we're told, had largeness of heart. He was always learning and always growing. And so he just has this creative mind. Not only does he have all the wisdom that God gave him, he has the knowledge and the understanding of the wisdom, but he just has his creativity. And you just don't build skyscrapers in Los Angeles, right? Somebody has to be really smart to understand the engineering, the soil, all that. When Jeremy Foster was here as associate pastor, his background was engineering. He had a degree from Oregon State in engineering. And he did all those wonderful things at Calvary as a teacher and served here for 15 years plus. Well, pretty much 15 years as a pastor with Worship Generation. But I really enjoyed talking with him about architecture, soils, design, buildings, and how this stuff works. Because to me, it's very fascinating because I just take for granted that someone knows how to build a skyscraper in downtown Los Angeles. But of course, if you build those wrong, well, we've all seen the disaster movies for earthquakes in Los Angeles, right? It all comes down. Even when Jeremy was down for the, uh, the, uh, the Dean wedding about a month ago, first time I saw him in a while, I asked him how the job was going because he works for an architecture firm now in Boise. And you, know, you, you figure out the soils. That's what he does because, you know, Boise's got foothills. It's a valley. And you have to figure out the soil and plan for, like, 30 houses being built or whatever. And to me, it's very fascinating. And that's what Solomon's doing here. He's building the temple in an altitude because Jerusalem is like 3,500 feet. It gets snow on occasion. Jerusalem will get snow just like the foothills of Riverside County will get it. Sometimes they'll come that low. And Jerusalem does get snow. So he's building this temple for the Lord. And you want to do it right. And it's a major undertaking. Now, Maybe we're not going to build skyscrapers in Los Angeles or figure out the soil compound in Boise to make sure the houses that are built and the plumbing lines are all going to be good for the next 50 years. But there are big projects that tend to come our way in life. Just being a mother, which is, of course, the highest calling I think there is in the human experience, to be a mother from the time you birth a child to the time you see them graduate at high school, Think what a commitment that is of 18 years. To get this newborn baby that's totally dependent upon you and to go through becoming toddler and these sorts of things and their cognitive capacities as they expand. And, of course, being a dad as well, but particularly a mother in this context. It's, it's a whole process. When you bring the baby home from the hospital, your first baby is like, what do we do? I always remember when we brought home Hannah... It, I kind of had an anxiety attack when we got home because once she started crying, I'm like, what, what do we do? And since Jennifer's always the smartest person in the room with me, I'm like, what do we do? And the maternal instincts kick in, and she did everything a mother would do, but it's just like this whole idea, like it's kind of scary to think like they really give you the baby. Like you leave the hospital, and they give you the baby, and you're driving home, like, oh, we got a baby. Like it's a very, for those who don't know that experience, it's a very sobering moment in your life experience. And it doesn't, it's a responsibility that lasts your entire life, right? All those mothers that are here tonight with your adult kids in their 30s or 40s even, and we're just starting college, like it just, but there's a start. And getting married is a start. We have a wedding coming up this weekend. And that's the beginning of something that's a, it's a start of a potentially 50-year journey as we celebrated with Bruce and Gloria just a few weeks ago praying for them. 50 years, like, there was a start. They had a start. We have a wedding coming up this weekend that's a start. 
Sam and Joanna just brought back Mark from the hospital. He's just born, right? Like, I think for many of us, we like shorter things. We like, okay, this is when we start stop. It's like I got two years of junior college and I can do what I want to do. I got my GE or whatever. We t- I think as Americans, we tend to think, we've been talking about this short-term, simple things, not over, well, at least I'm that way, being a former pro surfer. <laughs> like, just to me, I always try to build my life until I was in my 30s around good waves. And so the idea of long-term commitments with anything is like, apart from being married to Jennifer, it's like, I don't know. And we all think differently. My wife can do long-term commitments. To build this temple is a huge commitment. It's a huge commitment. It's a commitment of being like Mary. It's like a commitment of, of having a child. It's, it's a commitment of you're going to be a lawyer and the amount of time it takes to go to college and do law school and focus on the type of law you're going to do. And maybe you'll change what kind of law you want, want to do so you shift your focus when you're in all that postgraduate stuff. Or to be a, a doctor. Jennifer's sister, Sue, was a doctor. She's retired. And it was such a process for her to just everything or her residency in Albuquerque so many years ago, and it's some things just take a long time. And so I think about Solomon, where it says it was four hundred in the four hundred eightieth year since coming out of Egypt. They're going to build the temple now, and Solomon's running point on this. And to build this glorious temple, you got to get started, and you can't you can't focus so much on like how grand the project is or how, what a long haul this is. You need to focus on the moment and the faith needed for the moment. You have the plan, the long-term plan. We'll get to that in a moment. But, but you got to get started. Some people think about, well, we could do this and we could do that. I'm interested in being this. I'm interested in doing that or whatever. And like, I don't know if I really want to get married. Or, you know, kids is a big commitment, all these different things. And I don't know, like, that's a big. Listen, you got to get started. And you got to start living your life. And even Jeremy Foster, Pastor Jeremy, when... He was at Calvary working, and he was here working, and he was being stirred up to go back to learn engineering skills, not from when he went to college in the 90s, but to understand the software programming and understand computers and how it all works in his time. The last couple of years he was here, he was doing all this stuff online to build his skill set base. To He was going to reboot his career. He, Jeremy Foster reinvented himself in his mid-40s for the next 20 years. What he was doing while serving here and teaching at Calvary and coaching soccer, what he was doing was investing himself for a 20-year career back in engineering. And that was a huge commitment to do. But he just did it. So I just think of Solomon building the temple. Like It just reminds us that there are commitments that are a lifetime. There are projects that take years to complete. There's things that... are going to be accomplished, and the greatest things that are accomplished are never short and easy. It's usually a long process to accomplish anything great. And this is a, in the fourth year, I can imagine his first four years as king, he's planning, he's getting the wood, he's doing all this stuff. It's like the prelude, but now this is it. This temple is going to stand for hundreds of years. It, it arguably was the greatest building ever built in human history up to this time. And that's worth noting, because when you read a cubit this, a cubit that, and this is seven cubits, that's five, you're thinking, oh my goodness, what is this? It's the greatest building ever built by human beings up until this time on planet Earth. That's what it is. And not only that, it's a shadow of heaven. 
Because in the book of Hebrews, we're told that this is the model of heaven. So it's not just like building the sanctuary up there at Green Valley like Pastor Chuck and the guys did back in the late 90s. This is so much more than that. And it just reminds me, whatever chapter we're in in life, great things take time and they always have a beginning. And if we don't get started, it's never going to happen. So once we're starting and we're going, yeah, maybe you make the adjustments. But you can't, you can't be intimidated by the length of commitment because tomorrow's guaranteed to know one anyways. So really, if the Lord says, this is what I'm trusting to you, this marriage or this child or this career or this calling, or you feel led like Jeremy did in the mid-40s to reinvent himself, then you know you do what you do and you can't be intimidated by the, the process that's going to play out. You need to embrace the process one day at a time. And that's what we see from Solomon. You got to start. He began to build the house of the Lord. So I asked myself at 61 in 2022, are the things that God's saying for me, what I need, what he wants me to begin to do for his purposes in my life? Because ultimately for a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's his purposes in our life. And it's a good question for all of us. And I frame this thinking of like my life at 60, looking at a window of maybe 20 years where I'm going to move slower and be a little less efficient. I'm going to have more wisdom, but I'm going to lose energy. I'm going to lose physical energy, but hopefully I'll gain wisdom. And then I think of someone maybe in their 40s where you're like, okay, I've been ministering to Scott Cunningham. He's in a whole new career with his music, ministering to different people in similar situations. And it's like, okay, you're starting something new and it can be overwhelming. You got to build this supporters. Listen, what at 50, what at 40, what at 30, what in your 20s is God putting in front of you that seems like a monumental project that requires starting? You've got to start. Sheila Norman, who comes here occasionally from Carlsbad, she's running marathons now. I keep telling myself, you know, on my bucket list before I step into eternity, I'm going to run a marathon. Oh, really? Well, I think I do a little more than a mile and a half walk on the bike path. See, I'm just like, well, it's like, if I ever really, like, and she built up to it. Like, she, she never did anything like this before in her life until two years ago, right? And now she's running these marathons and sends Jennifer photos of her marathons. You know, it's like, wow. You get started. You, you run three miles in Carlsbad, then you run five miles, and then you run with this running crew, and then you run 12 miles in San Diego, and eventually you're running marathons. We can't be afraid of a large project. We can't be afraid to embrace, embrace the first day of work on a large project or the first day of a whole new beginning. And we can't get psyched out that this could take seven years or 15 years or whatever. We just need to say this is what God's calling us to do. And it seems like just such a massive undertaking. But you know what? You got to get started. Now, Solomon gives this great exhortation, gets this great exhortation from the Lord where in the middle of this project, the Lord says, hey, just want to remind you, because when you're working hard, you might forget why you're working. God pulls him aside. This is the word of the Lord came to Solomon. So this is the Lord speaking to him. He's like, hey, what you're building, this is awesome. But it doesn't matter if you're not walking with me, obeying me, and keeping my statutes. It's just a good reminder, like, whether you're going to be an engineer or going to be like, you know, this coach or be a husband or be the wife, be parents. It's just a good reminder that in the midst of the grind of life that, 
the Lord reminds us that it always comes back to the most basic fundamental things of obedience to the Lord and making the right decisions with the Lord. Hey, this is an awesome project, boy. Solomon, you got all the wisdom in the world and you're building things like, it's no one in human history has built anything like this before you. This is awesome. But just remember why you're building it. Just remember it's not about religion and your great intellect. It's about worship and the Lord and faith. And so that's a good reminder too. Because you could, you could be in a 10-year education process to be a lawyer or to be a doctor or whatever, and you can get so consumed by what you really have to do with the job or the task that you might forget, like, why you're doing it. Like, I think maybe some people would say, hey, I want to be a doctor to be a missionary. I want to serve the Lord, and I want to serve people that are underprivileged. And then maybe the whole process, you almost forget why you became a doctor, and then you end up with these, you know, the debt in the process, you're like, oh, I can't go. I just can't go to Africa this year. I just can't do these things because I got all this debt. Stra- like good, good beginnings for the Lord can get lost in the grind of reality. So I really appreciate that the Lord intervened in Solomon during this thing, this process. And he just goes, hey, just remember why we're doing this. And that the blessings are in the obedience and it'll all prosper. See, whatever we do will prosper. Whatever Joseph did in the book of Genesis, he prospered because the Lord was with him and his heart was with the Lord. And he was in a good place. Like it says in Psalm 1, Solomon's dad, David said, when, when you delight yourself in the law of the Lord, you're going to be fruitful in every season of life. You're going to prosper. For the obedient disciple of Jesus Christ, God promises us peace, protection, and prosperity. We don't really call it that in the New Testament. We call it being fruitful but he does promise it. And we want to be fruitful spiritually, practically. We want to sow bountifully. We want to receive bountifully and sow bountifully. We just want to be givers from start to finish and believe God. So I just love that Solomon's, that the Lord says this to Solomon. And I hope that encourages you because in the middle of all like widgets and gadgets and contractors and subcontractors and move this, move that, the Lord's like, hey, this is why you're doing this. So if you just keep on the right way and you do what you're supposed to do, I'm going to bless you and bless my people. Now we read on in verse 14. So Solomon built the temple and finished it, and he built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards. From the floor of the temple to the ceiling, he paneled the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. Then he built the 20-cubit room at the rear of the temple from floor to ceiling with cedar boards. He built it inside as the inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. And in front of the temple sanctuary was 40 cubits long, and inside the temple was cedar carved with ornaments, buds, and open flowers, all with cedar. There was no stone to be seen. So just remember for a moment, in the building of this temple, like the tabernacle, it's got the holy place and the most holy place. So the holy, most holy is where the Ark of the Covenant goes. The holy place is where the other precious things go. So that's just a little bit of detail there. But now we're being told about the wood, the stone, and these things. And he prepared, verse 19, the inner sanctuary inside the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high. He overlaid it with gold and overlaid the altar of cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold. He stretched the gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. The whole temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple. Also he overlaid the gold with the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. Inside the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim, those are angels, of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. One wing of the cherub was five cubits, and the other wing of the cherub was five cubits. Ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. And the other cherub was ten cubits. Both cherubim were the same size and shape. 
The height of one cherub was 10 cubits, and so was the other cherub. Then he set the cherubim inside the inner room, and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim, so the wings of the one touched one wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. This must have been so beautiful. And their wings touched each other in the middle of the room, also overlaid the cherubim with gold. Then he carved all the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and outer sanctuary, carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. And the floor of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and outer sanctuaries. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were one-fifth of the wall. The two doors were of olive wood, and he carved them on them figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold. He spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So for the door of the sanctuary, he also made doorposts of olive wood, one-fourth of the wall, and the two doors were of cypress wood, distinction of wood. And the two panels compromised the other folding door. Then he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers on them, overlaid them with gold, applied evenly on the carved wood. And he built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone and a, on a, and a row of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. That is the fourth year of his reign. And in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bul, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all of its details, according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. So we get back to that long game. He started a project. It took him seven years. Seven years, man. That's a, that's a pretty good chunk of time. And you younger people, let me tell you, it accelerates as you get older, just so you know. And like, how did seven years just go? It just went by like that. It just seems like... It stays the same, but it seems like time speeds up as you get older. Seven years, again, the long, the long plan. Now, I really like house designs. I like remodeling shows. I like stuff like that. Well, Luke Caldwell's TV shows, our former worship leader, Boise Boys and Outgrown. I just loved how they do redesign and open up walls and do all this stuff. So for me, I really like reading this about cedar wood and cypress wood and olive wood and the different woods and then the floors, the descriptions of the floors and the layout, like, you know, like I see it like the contractor doing this and knocking out a half wall here, opening up the living room and the dining room and doing this and that and new, new countertops and cabinets. Like, I love that stuff. So for me, it's exciting. But, you know, it's interesting. It's like, look at this wood. Can you imagine? Like, this is not some cheap wood from wherever you get cheap wood. I won't say any companies. It's just not that cheap wood, this floor. There's really good wood and there's cheaper wood and there's all the different things. And but like, they, do, they have the stones that were never, there's no chisel, right? So that's just incredible. The, but again, men put the Jeep on Mars, so men know how to build this without tools. Like, we're little supercomputers in our brains that God gave us. We're created as image and his glory. We're capable of much more than most of us ever accomplish. And that's why faith is so important. But in the end, all that was done, the gold was put over all of it. Gold is the metal of heaven. Gold is in Genesis 2, and it's good gold. Gold has been a standard for global currencies for 6,000 years of human history. And it's an interesting thing because to, it really doesn't make much sense other than for me, as I've studied it for years, that gold is the metal of heaven. Why would all these different dynasties and governments in human history always equate the strength of their currency and their economies to this metal that you can't do a lot with. There's not a lot you do with gold. They store, you store it up. You, the, you know, the Romans in our own country used to make coins from it as currency. 
You can still get more gold. I mean, there's obviously gold mines, and you can invest in gold mining and that sort of thing. So people are still adding gold. The Chinese and Russians are all trying to add more gold to back their currencies, the yuan and the ruble, against the dollar. We don't have anything like that. Just the feds that keep living on the afterglow of what our forefathers did in post-World War II, to be honest. But it's just so fascinating to me. Gold, like how it works that way. Like, and if you hold gold coins, you're just like, well, look at this, like this. It's, 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 a, it's a funny thing. Like, it's gold. And the best answer I can give for why gold has been the most consistent standard of wealth in human history is because it's the metal of heaven and God's put it in our heart. Because we're told he's put eternity in our heart. And when he describes his throne room, he describes it with gold. He's given us gold, and gold is something that transcends time, space, and matter. So, like, we leave a bunch of things behind here that we won't see in eternity. Like all the pollutants and the trash and that kind of stuff. But when we step into eternity, gold is in eternity. This entire temple was overlaid in gold. And gold is the metal of heaven. And for time, space, and matter, it has been the foundation of support of currency and maintaining wealth value for all kingdoms and empires, pretty much, from the dawn of creation. It's pretty interesting to me. Gold everywhere. And it says that they laid it out evenly. The gold was applied evenly on cardboard. These weren't some cheap contractors doing a crummy job, going to small claims court in Santa Ana because they didn't do the job right. Like, just so pristine for the house of the Lord. Love these details. Man, love it. So, seven years it was built. You had to get started. It took seven years. You got to play the long game. We've been talking about that. We got to see we can't be afraid of things that take more time because excellence and greatness take time. And I have ideas in my mind of excellence and greatness that I want to accomplish with my life before I step into eternity that has nothing even to do with necessarily my surfing career or even being a pastor. Just things for the kingdom of God in the last fourth quarter of my life. And I want to have excellence in those things. Not just the integrity of character, which we'll get to in the next chapter, but just excellence in what I'm doing. That I'm going from glory to glory with the Lord. That, you know, again looking at 35 years of ministry, in surfing, I was a Hall of Fame. Hall of Famer and the highest level, highest win you can have, like winning Wimbledon in tennis or the Masters in golf, like a green jacket. And in ministry, it's 35 years. I'm not really sure. It's so hard. You can't measure. There's no Hall of Fame for being a pastor, you know? I mean, it's almost like the crowd at the audit, you know, like a Roman Coliseum where they look at it and they go like, or like that. Like, you know, how do you even, like, how do you like great greatness? Like, what man would esteem, maybe, maybe God doesn't esteem. And what men don't esteem, maybe that is what God esteems. So, maybe in heaven there's a hall of fame. But um, I want the final season of my life where I'm a pastor to be a really good one. I want it to be the most fruitful one. That's who I want it to be. I, I, want, I want to be a better pastor in the coming years than I've been in the previous years. So that should be good news for you because I have all kinds of goals that are built around that. Now we come to chapter seven, but so we continue on with Solomon and his building. So, but Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. 
So he finished all of his house. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits. It's width 50 cubits. And its height 30 cubits with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. And it was paneled with cedar above the beam that that were on 45 pillars, 15 to a row. There are windows with beveled frames in three rows. Windows were uh, was opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and doorposts had rectangular frames and window was opposite window in three tiers. He also made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and its width 30 cubits. And in front of them was a, a portico with pillars and a canopy was in front of them. Then he made a hall for the throne. Then he made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment, where he might judge. And it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken his wife. All these were of costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws inside and out, from the foundation to the eaves, also on the outside of, to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, large stones, some 10 cubits, some 8 cubits, and ab- above were the costly stones, hewn to size and cedar wood. The great court was enclosed within three rows, hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. This is just amazing. I mean, these 12 verses, this is amazing. Like when you really think about what he's building, like this is all, this is just amazing to me. I'm just like, he had such a brilliant mind and an idea how he was going to build and he had the architects there and he's like this and we're doing the stone, we're bringing it from the quarry and we're going to use some of the wood from Lebanon, we're going to use this stuff. Like he just, as a designer and a builder, he just, he he understood it all. Like it's, it's kind of (laughs) unfair. It's just like, he really had it going. Like, he really, he was the smartest guy, the wisest guy, the richest guy. He's just, he's that guy. He had it to begin with, and then God gave him even more. Like, it's just crazy. Like, still, though, there's nothing wrong with asking that God would give us the same wisdom, right? And that he would make us really sharp at the skills. That he'd sharpen our skills for the things he's called us to do. So, again, like, want to be a better pastor over the next few years? Then, yeah, okay. Yeah, then, then why not ask for sharpened skills? Why not get better? We get better in the things that God has for us. But man, Solomon, this is, I just look at this. I think he built this and you got to keep Pharaoh's daughter happy. You know, those political marriages are, they're important and not go to war. I mentioned this, but you know, he married Pharaoh's daughter. That's obviously very political because when you marry his daughter, you're not going to go to war with Egypt and Egypt's not going to go to war with you. But then as soon as Solomon died, Pharaoh invades Israel. He whoops Rehoboam, takes the gold shields, that's the problem. When you're walking with the Lord, your wealth is safe, and if someone takes it, it, you know, it's just an offering to the Lord. But if you disobey the Lord, your wealth's not safe, and then when you lose, it's like, it's like, oh man, I did it to myself. And Rehoboam, of course, Solomon's son, we'll see it. He lost the gold shields. Pharaoh took them, and then Solomon, Rehoboam's like, well, I don't have gold, but I have bronze. So he built bronze shields and replaced the gold shields after he was plundered by Pharaoh. And then he was so nervous about his wealth, he couldn't even display it. He put it in a safe every night. It's just, but not Solomon. 
No, he just built and built and built new subdivisions. It's all going up. It's all brand new. Kind of that gentrified look with the rundown hoods. You know, you make it really nice. And the apartments are above the restaurants. And <laughs> everyone's, it's all going in the right direction. I mean, he's just building everywhere. It's like the horse stall stables everywhere. The military, these people, these guys are efficiently down in the quarry doing this guy. These guys are bringing the wood up from the Mediterranean. I mean, it's like, wow. he's getting it done. All right, so now we read on and we get this key passage. Just like that little passage where the Lord speaks to Solomon in chapter 6. Now we have another little passage that introduces someone to us. Very important, Hiram the craftsman. Verse 13. Now, King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was a son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. So Naphtali was the Jewish tribe, one of the 12 tribes. And they're in the north on the border, near, right there bordering Lebanon. And his father was a man of Tyre, so his dad was Lebanese. So that's the, you know, it's an interracial uh, marriage there, on that ethnic lines there. A man of Tyre, a bronze worker. So his dad worked with bronze. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. Well, couple ways to look at this passage, because this is the one that really jumps out at me in this chapter. Number one, we talked about this Saturday night. Pay people what they're worth and get the right people to do the right job. If, if you go cheap, you'll get cheap. We've, we've said this for years in raising kids in our 34 years of marriage. Like, you get what you pay for and you pay for what you get. So, you pay, you pay more for really good contractors, and they show up, and they're wearing the same shirts. They show up on time. They do the job right. They're close to their bids. They explain when they're going over their bid, and they do a great job. And the subcontractors, they show up because you're the sum total of the five people you hang out with. So they show up, and their plumbers are like this. Their electricians are like this. Their demolition crews like this. And even the, the fresh out of college guys working hard for them know you better carry this yourself this way because this is the culture of our company and you represent me when I leave this job to go to another job, and when you're in the brand's house, you better carry yourself according to our culture. You get what you pay for, and you pay for what you get. You young people, listen to me carefully. If you go cheap, you'll get cheap. And if you think, oh, there's never enough money, you know, pray for money. I said it last Tuesday. If God wants to drop 100 grand on you, he can, and he will. It's never about the money. It's about the heart and trusting God and looking for him to take care of you and provide for what's needed. There's a guy I watch on Instagram. He's a, he's a flipper on houses, big real estate guy up in Seattle. He's a Vietnamese immigrant, really neat guy. But he just literally had a post yesterday. He's going like, don't go cheap. My wife, way in front of me on this, like early on in our life, so when we have a house, it's like, we got to do the roof. She brings in like four or five people to bring bids. There's a cheap bid. Boy, that sounds inviting. 1500 bucks for a new roof, you think? What kind of roof do you get for 1500 bucks, even 20 years ago? Not the one you want in the year of El Nino, all right? And this guy comes in, oh, the guy doesn't have 20 grand for a roof. It's like, what? You know, like, <laughs> that's not going to work. And this guy comes in, super professional, six grand, this and that. We'll do it in two days. It's the way it's going to work. He's the type of, that's what you get. You find that person. You find that person to work on your car. You find that person to be your dentist. You, you just, you find that person to do the contractual work. And I've said this, man, in my neighborhood in the last two years, people across the street did all this work, and I 
Can't tell you how many times I heard the owner screaming obscenities at his contractor crew for their just their lack of professionalism and just not getting the job done. It was hard to watch. We brought in the right contractor. Our contractor, Gordon, he came in. Man, he's the best. He's like family now. I want to want to give him something in the will. Like he's like, like we go to the bar mitzvah, but he's Catholic, so we go. You know, we go to the mass or the quinceanera, whatever. We're like he's like family. And he always did what he said he was going to do, and he did a great job. And we paid him well, and we paid him in increments. Kept him motivated, right? Like keep the carrot there. Kind of learned that from Pastor Chuck. But we did, but he did a great job, and all of his people did a great job. I watched these people across the street, I'm thinking, like, how much money do they spend for this thing to drag on for two years on a remodel? Then this neighbor sells his house right before the downturn, and these guys are, he moves out, tells me he's moving out. These guys are working on the house for like two months, and you can just tell, they're, you can hear them. It's like the cackle of fools. I asked myself, is this the joy of people who enjoy their job, or is this the cackle of fools? And I concluded, it's a cackle of fools, but it's not my deal, right? This beautiful young couple moves in before their wedding day. They're going to get married. They had to take everything out. They took everything out. They had to get the blue 10 by 30 feet bin. They had to get the little pod for their furniture. They just moved in in their dream house, getting their first house. Had to move it out, put it in there, all this stuff. Oh, now they got this realtor going at this realtor. It's all, you get what you pay for, and you pay for what you get. Solomon brought in the most skillful person to build the temple of the Lord. And this dude knew what he was doing. He was trained by his dad in bronze on a higher level. Because remember, the Israelites were not bronze metal people. Remember the Philistines made their weapons of war form of metal? He was trained outside of Israel to do with bronze. Solomon did his homework. He went on, you know, LinkedIn. He did the look, man. This this is the guy. This is the guy. He's, he's from Naphtali. He's got the skill of his dad in the trade. And he brought him in, and he crushed it. And he brought him in. He paid him well, I'm sure. And this guy worked for him for seven years. And he got the job done. So this just reminds me, first off, an application, you get what you pay for, and you pay for what you get. And you need to learn early on in life, and most of us are a little bit older, that you just... You just can't go cheap. You just can't. You don't have to go extravagant, but you, you, need, you need to let the Lord confirm things and do things. Lord, is this our contractor? Because even again, when we had work on our house, Jennifer brought in different contractors, and it's just like you could just tell, like, oh, no, this, this, is a really, this is a good bid, but, like, I don't know. I can't tell you how joyful it was to have stuff done in our house by people that were completely professional, do what they said they're going to do when it was, could cost more because things we wanted to do. They walked us through it. I just can't tell you how much peace there was in that. And you want any dental work? I like my dentist. So when they told me it's like this much for your crowns and, you know, and root canals, it's like, you know what? Like, I like my, this has been my dentist for 15 years. I kept these dentists even when I couldn't keep them with the Calvary coverage when we were getting coverage through Calvary Chapel. I, I'm willing to pay out of my own money for the dentist I trust to work on my teeth. I've only got one set of them, right? Right? If they wreck your teeth, you're in trouble. You what you pay for and pay for what you get. He was skilled, which brings us to the second part of this application. We want to be skilled at what we do. We want to get better at whatever we're called to do in life. That's why he talking about every year in the Lord, there's a vision to be a better version of us in the Lord than the version we were the year before. 
So that has really not skill, but more like integrity, seeking the Lord, letting God work in our life. But it's obtainable for us. It is obtainable for everyone in this room to be more like Christ at the end of 2022 than how we began the year. So first of all, we're going from glory to glory. So if we take the principle that God wants to transform us and make us more like Jesus every year, which is the goal, that is the macro goal of our lives every day. You know that. You become more like Jesus. Just to be more like Jesus. That is the macro goal of, so when I say more patience, more kindness, more meekness, to be encouraging, edifying, that's just, that's just more Jesus. You just put more Jesus and all those things come out from the flow chart. So knowing that the Holy Spirit wants to make us like Jesus, wants to stir up the gifts in us and make us fruitful to fulfill the calling he has on our life in character, the fruit of the Spirit, in gifts just in the body of Christ, and with the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit to just shine for Christ, be salt and light and a witness, that's a given. But then, like, most of us are still working. Or even if we're not, there's a purpose in why we're alive. And that's where it goes back to Solomon and largeness of heart that we looked at last week, that he added knowledge to himself. And we want to be building our skill set. One thing that I really benefited from, from coaching with the U.S. Olympic Committee and doing the U.S. national team, the first part of the extra coaching training I did, when we went to Joe Gibbs Racing in North Carolina, it was all about culture. You know, so I studied Nick Saban in Alabama football. I studied just Pete Carroll in USC. I studied all this stuff and Joe Gibbs Racing. And I really benefited what I, I learned at that time of culture and how you establish a culture and you, a culture of excellence for sports, like the All Blacks with rugby from New Zealand, just stuff like that. Or... Navy SEALs, a little bit of that. But then they had this book about coaching, principles of coaching. You'd figure you'd have that, right? You'd think the Olympic Committee would have a book. It's almost like it's a, these are the principles of great coaching from the earliest level of sports, like six-year-olds chasing a soccer ball. Let's go down to four-year-olds chasing a soccer ball. Or five-year-old, five-year-old t-ball for girls and guys, okay, like, or machine pitch, boom, like, from there all the way through high school softball to travel ball, club ball, collegiate, D1, and they had the whole template to how to just common denominator to be a really good coach, and I got to tell you, I learned so much from that. I downloaded it from their website, I printed it, I put it in a notebook, and I studied it because I wanted to be the best coach I could be for U.S. Olympic surfing. I was a good coach with USA Surfing in the 2007 to 2009 with Courtney Conlog and Chloe Andino, these elite top 10 surfers in the world still today. But I wasn't a great coach. I had the John Wooden principles, but I wasn't a great coach. Then when I coached a Chilean team, which was the worst surf team, well, the British team was good and we did really good, but I was a fill-in. And then when I coached a Chilean team for three years, we were the worst team in the world, we became a pretty good team. And I learned things, but still like, there's just things like the culture of Chile, different culture, things lost in communication, like, you know, like, that's gnarly. Like, you can't say, like, Spanish doesn't understand gnarly. And English doesn't understand dale. Like, I'm like, wait, dale means this, because everyone in Chile, dale, 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 dale. I'm like, it's like the multi-purpose word. It has like 50 meanings. But then think about it, you're like, whoa, gnarly, dude. Who dude, gnarly. Oh, that's gnarly, right? Like, same thing. But then when I did the U.S. team the second time around and I did that book, I'm like, this, these are things that helped me improve my skills as a coach. And I became a better coach. And with a team of alternates, we won the world championship. 
It was a crowning moment of my coaching career. And I had made myself a better coach that year more than any other of the 19 years I was a coach in the sport of surfing. See, we want to be skillful. When Solomon hires you to make stuff with bronze, you want to show up. You're not like trying to figure it out. I mean, you will be figuring some things out, but you, you want to build your skill. So let me, in faith, we say, add to your faith, knowledge, and all these things, like it says in the New Testament. But with the skills you already have, how does God want to use those to benefit the body of Christ, even in retirement or semi-retirement? With the skills you've learned on life, how, how does God want to use that right now in your world for provision for your family, provision for your children and your children's children down the road. With the skills that you have and the interests that you have, how can you sharpen those skills? How can you become a more equipped? Like how can, how can you go from being like a coach that makes the podium to like winning gold? What do you need to learn? What do you need to study? How are you going to get better? Like these are the things that this is, it says he was skilled in working with bronze. It doesn't just happen. You don't just get this good as jacket. Worship doesn't, like, it, there's skill in that. And you develop that skill, and you learn things. I watched Phil Wickham. Phil Wickham as a teenager was amazing. Many of you know who he is, the famous worship leader. I spent, from the time he was 16 to 18, 19, I spent road trips in the car with that guy for hours talking with this teenager, spiritual teenager. I watched that kid write songs, show up. He was, and Jeremy Camp was the same way. They're so skillful in what they did in their shows and how they approach things. And they made themselves better. They made themselves better. And now look at these guys. They're the best in the world. They had great gifts. Lots of other guys had great gifts. Why are they like who they are? You fill the water pots and then God can turn it to wine. But if we don't fill the water pots, then God might not turn it to wine. And if even if he doesn't turn to wine, isn't it good to stand before the Lord on the day of Christ Jesus and know you filled your water pot? Who wants to show up before the throne with a half-filled pot of water? Of course, I'm referencing the Gospel of John chapter 2, where Jesus' first miracle said, fill the water pots. And it says they filled them to the brim. And then he did the supernatural. And it's been said, we should work like it depends on us, and we should pray like it depends on the Lord. And someone who's mature in the faith will balance those two things. Lazy people don't accomplish great things for the kingdom or for the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. That word skill is not just thrown out there. That's a word from the Holy Spirit. That means someone really became an expert at their trade. And Luke Caldwell taught me this about real estate investment. And I've said this many times. He said, well, get your hustle on. That's a different one. But he said, make yourself great at something and then make yourself a master within that. So make yourself great at real estate, but make yourself a master of the Boise market. That's what Luke Caldwell did as an investor, a real estate investor. And that really spoke to me. Like, you can do a lot of things. That's good. Be diverse, because in this generation, you need to be diverse. But make yourself great. Make yourself really skillful at something, and then, boom, drop the hammer and the mic and make yourself a master at that skill. That's what you want to do. Then maybe we get to build the temple for Solomon, huh? Yeah. This guy, this guy is the real deal. He's worth every, he is worth what they're paying him. Verse 15, and he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high and a line 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. Then he made two capitals, pillars of cast bronze to sit on top of the pillars and the, the height of one capital was five cubits. The height of the other capital was five cubits. 
He made a, a lattice network with reefs of chain work for the capitals, which were on top of the pillars, seven chains for one capital and seven for the other capital. So he made pillars and two rows of pomegranates. So now we get pomegranates above the network all around to cover the capitals that were on top. And thus he did for the other capital. The capitals which were on top of the pillars in the hall were the shape of lilies. Again, remember, he's a botanist. He's a zoologist. He just loves this stuff. And we're just seeing how he's incorporating everything he's doing. Four cubits. The capitals of the two pillars also had pomegranates above by the convex surface, which was next to the network. And there were 200 such pomegranates in rows of each of the capitals all around. Then he set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the right and called its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the left, which he called Boaz. The tops of the pillars were in the shape of lilies, so the works of the pillars were finished. Verse 23, and he made the sea of cast bronze ten cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits. A line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Below its brim was ornamental buds encircling it all around, ten to a cubit, all the way around the sea. The ornaments buds were cast in two rows when it was cast. It stood on 12 oxen, Oh, here we go, strength, 12 oxen. Three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. The sea was set upon them and all their back parts pointed inward. It was a handbreadth thick and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 2,000 baths. So he also made 10 carts of bronze. Four cubits was the length of each cart, four cubits its width, three cubits its height. And this was the design of the carts. They had panels and the panels were between frames. And on the panels were between the frames were uh, lions, oxen, and cherubim. And on the frames was a pedestal on top, below the lions, and again, now we have lions, and oxen were wreaths of plated work. Every cart had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze, and its four feet had supports. Under the laver were supports of cast bronze beside each wreath. Its opening inside the crown of the top was one cubit in diameter, and the opening was round, shaped like a pedestal, on one half cubit in outside diameter, and on the other opening, and also on the opening were engravings. But the panels were square, not round. Just all these details. Under the panels were four wheels, and the axles of the wheels were joined to the cart. The height of the wheel was one and a half cubits. The workmanship on the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axle pins, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast bronze. And they were four supports at the four corners of each cart. Its supports were part of the cart itself. On top of the cart, at the height of half a cubit, it was perfectly round. On the top of the cart, and its flangus and its panels were the same casting. On the plates of its flangus and on the panel engraved cherubim, lions, and palm trees. Wherever there was a clear space on each with wreaths all around. Thus he made ten carts. All of them were of the same mold and one measure and one shape. Then he made 10 lavers of bronze. Each laver contained 40 baths, and each laver was four cubits. On each of the 10 carts was a laver, and he put five carts on the right side of the house and five carts on the left side of the house. He set the sea on the right side of the house toward the southeast. Verse 40, Hurram made the lavers and the shovels and the bowls, so Hurram finished doing all the work that, was, that he was to do for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. Seven years employment. It's a good, good job. Verse 41. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals, and they were on the top of the two pillars. The two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals, which were on top of the pillars. 400 pomegranates for the two networks. Two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars. 
The ten carts and the ten ladders on the carts, one sea, twelve oxen, under the sea, the pots, the shovels, and the bowls. All these articles which Hiram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of burnishing bronze, burnished bronze, in the plain of Jordan. So these were made far from Jerusalem. You know, they'd cart these up 3,500 feet from the opposite side. Actually, it's more than 3,500 feet because it's a little bit lower. But so the wood came from the Mediterranean Sea this way from the west, but these elements came from the east where they were made there in near Jericho. In the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Succoth and Zeraton, and Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many and the weight of bronze was not determined. It's just abundance of getting it done. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings which made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold, the showbread, and the lampstand. See, these are the things that go in the holy place. We study these extensively in Exodus uh, back during COVID. Five on the right side, five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold and the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner room, the most holy place, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Just one final thought, verse 51. His father had dedicated stuff to the building of all this and for the kingdom, And I just think this is a beautiful verse because it just shows us that after David's gone, his wealth is still working toward the kingdom of God and spiritual things. That's important. I might not teach this topically Saturday. I might. So I might give a whole night to it. But the wealth that he amassed, which you can't take with you, he gave to Solomon to do this. So he funded this. His wealth that he left behind, that he built, he couldn't take it with him, but he funded this project, and then when it's said and done, he had wealth applied to this project for the ongoing ministry of the priesthood and the temple and all these things. So he's in eternity, and they say you can't take it with you, but you can sow it bountifully, and it can work for you when you're long gone. And all you have to think about is people like Pastor Chuck Smith, who did all these great things, and they're gone, but where they invested money in missionaries, where they invested money in projects and things and all that, those dividends that are spiritual, they just keep on giving. And dividends, if you don't know, that's your stocks paying off about every quarter of a year. And the dividends of the Lord, they never turn void. See, some people leave planet Earth in debt because they never learned how to trust the Lord for peace, uh, protection, and prosperity. And they lived in fear instead of faith. But if you sow bountifully, what you've sown will go on long after you're gone. And praise the Lord that David's long gone from planet Earth, but his wealth is still, that he amassed, is still being used to bring glory to God in the next generation. And that, that's a good word for all of us, that we leave things behind that not only our generational wealth, because it went to his next generation, but their kingdom wealth, and it just keeps on going. That's, for you older people, you know exactly what I'm saying right there. Yeah. That's a man who was wise when he stepped into eternity. He didn't leave it to probate or the lawyers that figured his stuff out. He had a deliberate plan. It went this way, generational wealth in the family, and went this way for the kingdom. It's a good word.